You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net if you want more information. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Neil Lankto. He's an historian an author of several books, including a biography of Baseball Hall of Famer Roy Campanella. His latest volume is called The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and Their Clash Over America's Future. It's already garnered strong reviews from outlets such as Library Journal and Publishers Weekly. It's a terrific book. It's well-written, full of great stories and asides. Dr. Lanko earned a PhD from the University of Delaware in 2002. Thank you, sir, for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, and thank you for that very nice introduction. Is it fair to say that this book would be a little bit of a departure from your previous works, which have kind of centered a little bit on baseball and, and some African-American history in the early 20th century? It would be correct to say that. Um, I felt that I had done enough work in that area that I, you know, instead of everything I, want, I had to say about, uh, you know, I've done the works on the Negro Leagues, I've done the bio on Roy Campanella. Um, and I, I wanted to do something that was more broad based as far as its appeal, uh, do something in American history that would not be limited to sports readers, um, which surprising to say is not as big as you would think. We have a lot of people who like sports in America, but not, people, not necessarily that many people who want to read about sports. So I was looking for something that I thought would be interesting to myself and also to potential readers. And that's what's led me to uh, a, new, a new topic and a new area of focus. Did your books, your previous books, kind of give you a sense of the, the mood of the temperature of the country uh, during this time period before World War I? No, actually, what inspired me to write this book was I had been looking through a series of, of books written in the 1920s and 30s by Mark Sullivan. Um, Mark Sullivan was a pretty famous journalist in his time, not so well known now, but Sullivan was somebody who wrote a, he wrote a six-volume series in the 1920s and early 30s about the prior 25 years in American history from the perspective of someone who had lived through it. 
Um, and Sullivan knew everyone. You know, he was he was very well connected, and he was friends with all the movers and shakers. So he wrote this very interesting series of books, um, great social history written in the twenties and thirties about the prior twenty five years. And I had obtained a copy of that that series and started to thumb through it. And when I started to read about the World War One sections, there's actually a couple of volumes. I was thinking, this is this is so much interesting stuff in here uh, on what was going on in the United States and. It's not something that we as Americans are familiar with. And I think there's a great story in here to tell. And that's what led me to decide to tackle this topic. Because what I realized was, is that America's decision to get involved in World War I is one of the most important decisions the country ever made, because it basically affects the outcome of World War I. Um, obviously, both sides are in a stalemate until the United States entered the war. And that certainly helped facilitate the eventual defeat of Germany. Now, if those two sides had never, if they had continued to fight to a stalemate, maybe some sort of negotiated peace had occurred, and then you have the entire history of the remainder of the 20th century being different. So America getting involved in the war, helping in the defeat of Germany, of course, affects the trajectory of the, of the 20th century with the Treaty of Versailles and, and reparations and Hitler and then another war. Um, if the United States doesn't get involved in the war, we have a potentially entirely different scenario for the 20th century. So it was an extraordinarily important decision for the country. Um, and I think World War I tends to get neglected in the American experience because our actual military participation is fairly brief compared to World War II. So what I was trying to do here is to try to center um, our experience and see how important it was for us to make this decision and how it came to be and then tell the story through these three individuals. Depending on the historian, America is, is described as isolationist, non-interventionist, or neither, both. What's your take? How would you define the United States' attitude and actions um, towards Europe uh, in the years preceding the war? It depends on the part of the country is what I would say. And I think that's even true in the buildup towards the war. I think the East Coast uh, was more of an interventionist streak. Um, but as you moved west and as you moved down south, there was a, a, a great disconnect uh, with what's going on around the world. Um, you know, Roosevelt, who's one of the individuals, of course, that I focus on in this book, Roosevelt even mentioned you know, our people don't understand foreign affairs and aren't particularly interested in learning about them. So I think a, a certain segment of the country, yes, was very connected to what's going on in Europe and immediately felt when the European war starts that we have to have some sort of um, involvement, whether it's military or some other other supportive way. Um, but in the hinterlands, I would say, and in, and in the South and on the West Coast, the interest and the and the desire to be involved in European affairs was fairly fairly insignificant. Um, it really comes through in your book. That was something I'd never really considered. You know, you read about, you know, it was the Wall Street interest and the the mercantile and commercial interests who were favoring um, Great Britain. You know, almost from August fourth, nineteen fourteen, and on. But your point about the geography was something that I just had never really considered. That that people who were a little, uh, you know farther west into the country from the East Coast had a completely different attitude. Yeah. And one of the issues, of course, that that's going to keep flaring up again and again in, in the in the two and a half years or whatever it is 
of the outset of war and our eventual involvement is American travel um, and American travel and, and, and potential of being of Americans being killed by, by German, German submarines. Um, people on the East Coast who were going to travel abroad, that was a big important issue for them. But then you have masses of people in the United States who never went, never traveled to Europe, had no reason to go to Europe. It's like, why is this important to us? Why do we care about American travel? Uh, is it re really worth us getting involved in a war because some Americans who want to travel to Europe are being killed? Now, on the East Coast, as I said, very important to people who had business there, want to travel there. But in, again, parts of the, in the West and in the, in the, in the South, it was just not a concern to them. And I think that there was, there was always this, um, this difference of opinion. And I think I have a quote in the book from Colonel House, who was, who was Wilson's advisor. And Colonel House told a British official something to the effect that whatever the opinion is on the East Coast is the opposite of what the rest of the country thinks. So, and you can even, <laughs> even say in today's world, the East Coast is a very, that's a very different way of looking at things compared to the rest of the country. So, I mean, we, we have a large country here. We had a large country in 1915 and we have a large, even larger one today. Um, so there, there was never ever one single opinion um, and I think what, what President Wilson, of course, will be trying to contend with is how do you tie all these opinions together? How do you get what the people seem to want uh, as far as policy is concerned? How do you take that and, and, and create some sort of policy which is acceptable to the country and get himself reelected because he's going to deal with an election in 1916? Um, I think one thing that Wilson realized, he said what the country wants is firmness towards you know the germans uh, and even the allies but not too firm that might get us involved in the war so it's like be firm but not too firm and that's this this he's trying to thread that needle that's what wilson tries to do to keep us out of the war as long as he possibly can you mentioned this just a few minutes ago let's go back to it for just a second on the litany of watershed decisions in american history where would you rank the vote to enter world war one and and what would be two or three others complete the mount rushmore for us and what would be your uh four biggest decisions in in american history i think world this this decision to go to world war one would be in my in the top five i i think i think definitely um i think the decision to drop the atomic bomb would be another another watershed decision I think Pearl Harbor, the decision to go to World War II, enter World War II would be another one. Um, probably the, the, the decision to uh, American Revolution would be certainly another, obviously, or is that cheating because it's not really, we're not the United States yet. <laughs> or, but I think that's obviously a very important decision. Uh, probably Lincoln deciding not to just let the South go in peace, mm -hmm. deciding we're going to force, we're, we're going to prevent secession. We're going to make sure we're going to have to go to war. So I think that would be another one. So those are the, I think the biggies in, 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 off the top of my head, as far as unbelievably significant decisions that probably change the shape of, of our future. And all of the examples you listed involve conflict. In in 2021, in the last generation, two or three, the United States deciding to send its men overseas is commonplace, right? It's 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 dog bites man. But in 1917, it's man bites dog. Yes. Exactly how big of a decision of how much of a departure was it for the United States to decide to send its men over to Europe? 
Well, it's an interesting question because even up to the point when we declared war, there were there were many Americans, even many people in Congress who thought, okay, we're declaring war, but that does not mean we're going to send troops. Right. Um, there was a belief even, uh, okay, well, we're going to, we'll, we, you know, we'll use the American Navy, we'll, we'll convoy British ships and we'll, 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 uh, contribute our, our money and our, and our, our, uh, you know, we'll continue supplying the allies with munitions, but sending an army over no, no that's, that's not going to happen. And of course that wasn't even that surprising because our, our army in 1915, 16, 17 was so small and so insignificant. It was about a hundred and something thousand. Uh, and that's, a, that's one of the themes of the book is Roosevelt trying again and again to push the country towards what they call preparedness, military preparedness. Right. So it seemed almost fantastic, the idea of sending a massive American army over the Atlantic Ocean to France and Belgium. It just seemed absolutely inconceivable that it would happen. And of course, it does happen. Um, and interesting thing, also, if the war had gone on longer, we would have had, I don't know how many millions of American troops uh, in Europe, which might have also changed changed another, changed uh, Wilson's Wilson's uh, power at the Treaty of Versailles. There would have been more American troops there and our participation in the war would have been greater. He would have had greater oomph at the peace table than he actually had. Um, but yes, it was it was a, a complete game changer, something that was unthinkable. Of course, we had deployed American troops, but in much smaller uh, increments. I mean, Wilson had sent troops to various Latin American countries. And of course, we've been involved in the Spanish-American War. But but going to Europe like that was, no, that was just not 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 thought of, not not even believed to be possible before this this war. Looking back through history, it seems that sometimes wars happen despite evident prosperity. Um, I, I've read more than one book and I laugh because I believe it about how spoiled rotten the colonists were prior to the American revolution, that they were incredibly prosperous and, and some of their grievances were a little more contrived than others. And then Europe in 1914 was hardly trudging through a depression. Um, why does, why do wars sometimes happen when, if you take a step back and, and look at the wider view, things are going pretty darn well. Well, I suppose it's always about greed. You know, it's always about, you know, we had mentioned before starting starting an interview, you know, Germany. And uh, Germany wanted what, what England had to some degree. They wanted the colonies. They wanted the power. Um, and they were prepared for war. And the Germans were also felt threatened by the Russians. And the idea was we can solve a lot of our problems. War was not a a fearful thing to them. Now, did they think it was going to spiral out of control the way it did? I don't think, I don't think no one, no one in summer of 1914 could have believed it was going to turn out the way it turned out. Um, and I think even in the very beginning, there was a thought that it, was, it would be over quickly. Um, but all of a sudden it spiraled into the worst, you know, the worst cataclysm in, in, in history up to that point. Um, it seems like it's go ahead, sir. I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's okay. I was going to say the economic issue is also interesting as well. I mean, America benefited a great deal from the war even before we got involved ourselves because, you know, the, the country was not, it was probably, I don't know if it was quite in a recession in 1914, but we weren't doing, you know, it was, there was some struggle. There was a lot of unemployment. Uh, once the war begins and we start supplying, particularly the allies, uh, supplying them with munitions, um, 
the American economy just booms, 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 booms. And that, that takes us out of it. And it's going to be resentment among the Europeans on both sides that, you know, the Americans are getting rich off our misery. I mean, our, the, our, the flower mm-hmm. of our youth, be it, be it the German side or the British side and the French side, whatever, are dying. And the Americans, those, the Yankees, as they would you know, call them, are making money hand over fist. Um, so that's, that's a, another interesting part of, of the war. Um, the, the Europeans had this, this belief about us anyway at that time. They, we, we were nothing but a materialistic society anyway. And they, <laughs> we knew nothing about honor or sacrifice. And you know, it's all they care about is money. And they're, they're, it's interesting to read some of the diplomatic dispatches from, from uh, Cecil Spring Rice, who was the, um, he was the, he was the British diplomat in Washington. And he's writing back to, to London saying, you know, these people, they're not raised to be honor about honor. That's all they care about is making a buck and we can't expect their help. And so there was that view of Americans that are, that's all they care about. You know, they're not, they're not, uh, they're not like us. Um, The the South said that about the North before the civil war. That's just, they're just, you know, they don't have any honor. They're just in it for the money. They're industrial. They don't have Elon. Yes, and I think I think the Germans said that about the British that they were a nation of shopkeepers, as I as I recall. So they're not, not, not soldiers. Bismarck said that. I think no, yeah. it was Napoleon. Napoleon. Oh, yeah, someone someone said that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about. You mentioned three people in the subheading in your book. Let's talk about them for just a few minutes. Um, I confess to have not read much about Teddy Roosevelt for reasons that I I really can't defend, but what I have read about him he seems to be as much of a phenomenon as he was a president. How dominant of a, of a personality and a figure was he in this time period? I don't think there's ever been a president like Roosevelt, frankly, uh, someone who, while he was president was such a, such a captivating figure, such a fascinating individual who was so recognizable with, you know, with the look, with the, with the glasses and the smile and the saying bully and the delighted. And, and I talk about this in the book, but he was almost, he was a celebrity, you know, in, in, in a way that very few presidents are celebrities. Maybe JFK would have fallen into that category. People who may not care about politics, but I mean, they're actually almost rock stars. And, and I think TR was in some ways a rock star in his time, particularly when he was president, you know, cause he, he did everything. He was, he was a, a brilliant individual. Plus he was, you know, he, he was an explorer and he, he, could, he could converse on just about every topic known to man. And so Americans were, were fascinated with him, completely fascinated with him. But at the time of the book, when the book starts in 1914, his career is actually on the downslide. You know, he had served in the White House. After he got out of the White House, everything seemed to go go wrong for him. I mean, the man he had picked as his replacement, his friend William Howard Taft, turned out not to be what Roosevelt thought he was going to be as far as following his policies. And then uh, Roosevelt decided he wanted to be president again, and the Republicans wouldn't nominate him, so he ran for president under a new party, the Progressives, and he lost to Wilson in 1912. And when the book starts, he's trying to, he's kind of at a loss what to do next because the Progressive Party, the party that he had formed, is kind of falling apart. It's not doing what he thought it's going to do. He absolutely detests the man in the White House, Woodrow Wilson. I mean, that's part of the one big part of this book is right. the competition between these men. And what particularly galls him is that Wilson is in the White House during what Roosevelt soon comes to realize is the event of his lifetime. 
a global war, and he's not in the White House to be handling it. And he comes to believe that he's doing just about everything wrong, mishandling every part of foreign policy. And Roosevelt, he just, you know, he just out, outwardly says, Wilson's the worst president we've ever had. He, he's a disaster. James Buchanan is smiling. Yeah, the hatred of him is so intense. Um, he just absolutely despises this individual that he's in the White House. Um, some of it's personal, some of it's philosophical. They had once been cordial, you know, before, mm-hmm. but, it, 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 you know, of course, they're on two sides of the political fence, Democrats, but they're both progressives. And that's one of the reasons why I brought the three into this book. You know, it's Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and Jane Addams. All three of them are progressives, progressive with a small P of the progressive movement. Um, but they all have different perspectives on what America should be doing as far as this war is concerned. There seemed to have been, in my view, I was going to ask this question, but uh, you mentioned him. So we'll just kind of discuss it for a second and move on. We're actually recording this podcast on November 22nd, the anniversary of Kennedy's assassination. It seems to me there have been five celebrity presidents, Washington, Andrew Jackson, Teddy Roosevelt, Jack Kennedy and Barack Obama. When you reach that status, and please either disagree with me or add a president or two, um, it's hard to be to overcome that shadow. And Wilson seemed to have looked at Roosevelt with a jaundice eye for that reason and some others. I might throw FDR on that on that list, perhaps. Um, but I would agree with all your other ones. Uh, coming back to Wilson, yeah, I mean, they're very different individuals as far as Roosevelt was also from personality perspective, was just a, a more outgoing, forceful personality who was very hard to resist. Even Wilson, who, who did not like Roosevelt, obviously, for obvious for obvious reasons, there's a quote in the book where Wilson said something like, he is hard to resist as a, as a personality. You know, he's... Mm-hmm. He just he's so captivating. He's so much joie de vivre. You know, mm-hmm. Wilson wasn't like that. Now, on the other hand, I think people tend to think of Wilson because he was an academic. Wilson had been uh, got a Ph.D. In, in political science and he was president of Princeton. People tend to think he was, you know, well, he's an academic. He must be kind of serious, but he really wasn't in his private life. And actually, he was more outgoing and more personable like jokes, like limericks and things like that, and, and was more than capable of carrying on a very passionate relationship with a widow, as we talk about in, in the book. Uh, he loses his wife in the very early days of World War One, but within a year, he's already found another woman, and he's writing her passionate, almost obsessive letters almost every moment during his free time in the middle of some serious crises, you know, the Lusitania sinking and things like that. So Wilson's is a very complex individual, I would say, but very different personality-wise. And he was not someone who was going to attract the kind of fanaticism, fanatic loyalty that Roosevelt did. People who were royal, who were Roosevelt people just loved him, and they would walk through a, a brick wall for him. Um, I think Wilson commanded respect, but not that kind of fanatic uh, hero worship. We should also mention, of course, that Roosevelt was a soldier who was awarded 100 years later, but was awarded the Medal of Honor, I think in 2001, um, posthumously, and we should also mention um, his son, Teddy Roosevelt Jr., received the Medal of Honor for his actions on D-Day. Teddy Roosevelt Roosevelt Jr.'s, when Omar Bradley was asked the, the, the bravest thing he had ever witnessed as a soldier, 
Omar Bradley replied, Ted Roosevelt, Omaha Beach. So it ran in the family. Yes, and he raised his sons to have that sense of duty and certainly a, a, a belief. You know, Roosevelt always said, you know, if there's a war, my, I and my sons are going to go. It's, it's, no, there's no question about it. And, of course, that's another one of his great frustrations, Roosevelt, is that he wants to go over to serve in World War I. And he's going to go to Wilson. He's going to, at the end of the book, he goes to see Wilson. And Wilson holds his fate in his hands. I won't give it away in case people are going to read this book, of course. But there's a, there's a great confrontation between Roosevelt and Wilson when, Wilson when Roosevelt has to kind of lower himself to go see the man who he has vilified in print and, in, you know, for the last three years to ask him if he can go over and serve. The subtitle of your book, You Give Teddy Roosevelt Top Billing, was that a conscious decision? I think it was the publisher's decision, probably because he's the big name of the three. <laughs> he is his name. I, I, I admit it. Uh, Jane Adams is the small is the is the least well known of the three. Um, we can talk about her briefly here if you want. Well, um, that's my that's actually my next question. Let me just say we're uh, you're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We're talking with Dr. Neil Langto, author of The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt Wilson. Adams and their clash over America's future. Uh, before we actually started the podcast, I said to you that I had not read about Jane Adams in a long time and had forgotten what a total badass she was. Incredibly impressive. Tell us a little bit more about her and her work. It's funny you, you use that term because my publicist, who's a young woman, um, when we first started talking about the book, she used the word badass also, a very 21st century <laughs> I think it does apply to her, and it's for you, for your listeners. I mean, Jane Adams was a reformer. I mean, she was someone who grew up in privilege um, in the Midwest, and she was a very intelligent woman, but didn't really know what to do with her life. But she eventually drifted into what was called the Settlement House Movement. She and a friend opened Hull House in Chicago, and these these settlement houses, as they were called, were were places where the poor in these neighborhoods, it was set up in poor neighborhoods. Um, it would almost be social service agencies. Now, today, mm-hmm. it doesn't sound like a radical thing, but in the 19th century, this was like, oh, working with the poor and trying to address their, you know, because there were no social service agencies at all, especially middle class and well-to-do women who were very involved in this movement running things. This was this was a great jumping off point uh, for Adams. And she soon became involved in the whole reform movement in general, and then what we call the progressive movement. And by the early 1900s, she was probably one of the best known women in the country, with maybe the possible exception of Helen Keller. I mean, very, very famous. Everyone knew her, everyone knew the work she did. And she sort of had a reputation as being an American saint, as a do-gooder. But there was another side to her. She was involved in some very controversial causes like pacifism. Uh, she was also mm-hmm. very much involved in the suffrage movement. She was involved in the civil rights movement. She was involved in the NAACP when they got started. So she was truly part of almost every liberal reform movement in the early 20th century. As I said, she was famous. She was very famous during her time. Everyone knew her as the selfless Jane Addams American saint. Um, Roosevelt had worked with her when he ran for president in 1912 and wrote, and Jane Adams actually joined the Bull Moose Party, which was the party that Roosevelt established after the Roosevelt after the Republicans wouldn't nominate him. So she'd work with him. Um, 
they're going to quickly split when the war begins because Jane Adams had a very different idea of what America's responsibilities were as far as this war was concerned. Adams believed that we should be doing everything we can to bring peace to the combatants. She was a pacifist, but she was not necessarily a pacifist and maybe in the modern term where she was nonviolent and all that. She believed that it was archaic to have fighting like this in the 21st century, to have men slaughtering each other, that there should be ways to solve differences between countries through some sort of you know mediation or whatever. What she wanted right. the United States to do is uh, some sort of conference of neutrals, you know, bring all the neutral powers together who would start sort of the start some sort of effort to bring the warring parties to the peace table, that the United States would be the prime mover in bringing both sides to the peace table and getting them to hammer out some kind of agreement. That's what she felt the United States should be doing. Uh, nothing more than that. And that becomes her her entire cause for, for, for during the course of the period before we get involved in the war from 1914 to 17 is trying to get Wilson to somehow get the United States to take the big jump to bringing the countries, the warring countries to the peace table. That's what she feels we should be doing. She famously was president of the Women's Peace, Women's Peace Party and was instrumental in organizing the International Peace Conference at The Hague in the spring of 1915. Uh, the attendees were ridiculed as the peacettes. Um, yeah, I mean, Adams but what was but, but what was the impact just very quickly? What was the impact of Adams's efforts and then her extraordinary tour of the European capitals after the conference had ended? Yeah, I mean, Adams does things that that people, you know, because I said she was very venerated before the war. But the things she's going to do during the war, during during this pre-period before American involvement are going to be very controversial. Um, as you mentioned, she's going to be involved in this Congress of Women in, in at the Hague, and afterwards, there's going to be this this movement that the they're, they're going to send diplomats from this representatives from this peace conference to visit representatives of all the warring countries. So Adams is going to go to Germany. She's going to meet with the German leader. She's going to go to France. She's going to go to England. It's it's really quite amazing. I mean, it's it's citizen diplomacy before it, it truly existed. Uh, and a woman doing this. And, and all right. of the warring countries are going to feel, well, we must see her. Because if one sees her, then the others have to. Otherwise, they're going to look bad. Because they're all fighting a PR campaign, you know, for the rest <laughs> of the world, the neutral yeah. power. So she will go. She'll talk to all of them. Um, that will be heavily criticized in the United States. How dare a woman do this? How dare a woman stick her nose in, in diplomacy? They know only the diplomats know what's going on. Um, she'll also get in trouble, so to speak, when she comes back home and she makes a speech at Carnegie Hall and says, makes this, makes a statement to the expression that how many of the soldiers need artificial means to get them to, to, to use the bayonet and charge. Um, and this becomes this, how dare she question the bravery of soldiers? You know, how dare she say that, that they need to be given alcohol to charge? And she didn't really say that, but there, there's just a, there's a resistance to her because she's not following the establishment view of the war, uh, the establishment meaning the the big city newspapers. So she will be viciously attacked um, for for much of the war. Uh, and, and to her credit, she never that doesn't bother her. I mean, she she was she, factually correct. Yeah, I and she, she was. Yeah, and she's she's willing to stick her neck out. I mean, there's a quote in the book where um, 
her niece said that Clarence Darrow once told her that Jane Adams, one thing I like about her is that she has courage. Very simple way of putting it, but she did. You know, she was she was she was not concerned if, if public opinion um, turned against her. I mean, that's that's interesting too about the three of the individuals. You know, Roosevelt, Adams, and uh, Wilson. All of them are at different times going to be very unpopular, or their their stances towards the war will be very unpopular. But they're they're willing to do that. They're willing to to take the unpopular side to to pursue what they believe is the right path for the United States. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest is Dr. Neil Lankto, author of The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and Their Clash Over America's Future. Woodrow Wilson's reputation has been under pretty significant attack for the past few years. As Forget just this book for a second. As an historian, is this, is this attack justified, this reevaluation? I suppose to a certain degree. I mean, the, 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 the greatest attack has been his, his racial views, uh, which I touch on a little bit in this book. Um, when the war begins, uh, there happens to be a delegation of African-Americans who go to the White House to, to protest the segregation that's going on in the federal department. When Wilson comes in, um, his cabinet members, most of his cabinet officials, push for segregation in government, in the, in the, in the government jobs, uh, in a lot of the, in a lot of the civil service positions. And Wilson doesn't stand against it. I mean, he's, he's perfectly fine with it. Uh, so a, a delegation goes to see him in the white house. And what's interesting is that there's a transcript of this, this interaction between Wilson and the you know, this delegation led by this editor, William Monroe Trotter. And it, it gets very heated at times. I mean, Wilson, you know, he's a Southerner and Wilson, I, I He's not happy that an African-American man is, is kind of speaking up to him. And, and, and it's interesting. He tries to explain Trotter, the African-American editor, tries to explain to Wilson why segregation is wrong. He's like, separating us makes us feel that we're not equal to our brothers, our white brothers. And Wilson just can't grasp that. He's just like, you know, that's, you know, th- this is this is to avoid friction. There's nothing wrong with this. And if you if you think so, you're, you know, and eventually they kind of the Secret Service comes in and escorts Trotter out. But that was Wilson's view. I mean, he he never could get beyond what he was raised on. I mean, he was mm-hmm. from Virginia. He was, he was, you know, he grew up during the Civil War. He was born in 1856 when he in the war. He was, I guess, eight or nine years old when the war ended. Um, so he never could 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 see African-Americans as being equal. He could not see segregation as a bad thing. So viewed through a modern lens, yes, of course, it's unacceptable. I I would still say he was not a a rabid race baiter. You know what I mean? He was not a, like, filled with, you know, horrible racial racial views as far as like there were many extreme far more extreme individuals in in, in, in congress at that time than wilson um wilson was just someone who he couldn't get beyond what he was what he what he'd been brought up on um, he, he believed he segregation the, was acceptable mm-hmm. and he couldn't he couldn't he couldn't 
move beyond that. All three of the main actors who you mentioned in your subheading, Woodrow Wilson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Jane Addams, received the Nobel Peace Prize. Roosevelt in 1906, Wilson in 1919, and Adams in 1931. Is this just a coincidence or is it meant to represent a common thread? It's funny because I don't think I realized that so well into my research for this book. Um, I probably could have used that as a thread, but uh, it's funny because they all had very different ideas about peace. Now, Roosevelt, of course, always had the reputation as a warmonger and he would even argue at times with Jane Addams and, you know, and and her, and her followers and, and Roosevelt say like, I'm no warmonger. Look at me. I won the I won the Nobel Peace Prize. I, I mean, I helped bring peace to 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 uh, the, you know the, the, the Russian and Japanese war. I mean, I helped I helped bring those parties together. Um, it's just that my view of how peace can be achieved is very different from yours. I don't believe that your approach your approach is totally wrong. My approach is right. Um, so all of them had different different ways and different views of how things should be brought about. And we can jump ahead. I don't really talk about the book, but the League of Nations. Mm-hmm. Um, Roosevelt died, you know, when the war, the war was ending, Roosevelt died right after the war ended, but in the last months of his life, he was not really particularly in favor of the League of Nations, at least the way it was going to be constituted. So he would not have agreed with, with what was going on, or he might have accepted the League of Nations, but with a number of loopholes built into it, which Wilson well, would not accept. And in your book, you, you detail somewhat Roosevelt had his own conception of a world league. Yeah, that, that in, in the very early days of the war, Roosevelt wrote a series of articles which were widely syndicated, and he did talk about in some time in the future there might be some sort of almost a world police force where where like various nations could get together and act in unison to punish global wrongdoers. But as he said at the time, this this would be far in the future, and certainly we in the United States can't participate right now because our military is so insignificant. And this was sort of his way of, again, pushing for greater preparedness as a nation. He said at one point, I think I have this in the book where Roosevelt said, uh, there's not a country in the globe that has more wealth, but less opportunity to protect it. And we should never note that he's the man who sent the great white fleet sailing around the seas. He, and he was a, terrific naval historian and disciple of uh, Mahan and thought that much like the Kaiser was. And I think, I think Teddy Roosevelt and the Kaiser met. They they did meet. They Mm -hmm. did meet. Um, They met, I think in 1910 around there, 1910 or 1911, I I recall. And they did have this, this, this interesting interaction because a lot of people thought that the Kaiser was personality wise, like TR to a certain degree. So it was this, Oh, great meeting. And, Roosevelt was actually disappointed when he met 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 the Kaiser because he thought he was going to be able to talk to him a lot of, about a lot of different things. But he said, afterwards, he said, "All he knows are armies, and there's not much else you can talk to him about." Kaiser Wilhelm spoke fluent English, so it was a really interesting conversation. Um, but Roosevelt never trusted the Kaiser, even be, even while he was president. And there's you know Roosevelt, I think at one point said that Germany, ever since unification, had basically menaced every country it could unless someone stood up to them, uh, that they've always had their fingers outstretched. And that's that's why he viewed them as potential danger. And he also saw them 
he, during the early days of the war, he said Germany comes out in front in this war. If they win this war, they may at some point try to team up with Japan. He was already thinking that, you know, he's thinking far ahead. Uh, so he saw Germany and potentially Japan as being potential threats to the United States in the future, depending on how the war turned out. So he, he was under no uh, delusions about, illusions about, about Germany or the Kaiser. This period in American history is replete with intriguing historical characters, and your book mentions several of them. Other than the three main actors we've been discussing, uh, who plays a major role in your story? There's a bunch of, I would call them secondary characters, who I think are, are quite interesting in this book. Uh, one of them is James Norman Hall. James Norman Hall, I, I, I used him to illustrate the stories of Americans who went to go fight before the United States actually joined the war. Um, Hall was a, was a, a, a guy from Iowa uh, who was a would-be writer. And he, when the war starts, he's in England and he, he joins the English army. Uh, and he basically tells them he pretends to be English, and then the English recruiters know. <laughs> no, we know you're not. We know you're not, but just pretend you are, and then they accepted him. And so I use his story because he wrote very interesting letters uh, back home to his friends and family about what's going on. He talks about the training, and then when he goes into combat, um, he spends about a year in the British Army, comes back home, and immediately he wants to go back. And he ends up going back to France in 1916. This time he joins up with the with the French, but this time he's in, in the Air Corps. So he learns how to fly. So he joins the French Air Corps. And then later on, he serves in the American Army. So he serves actually in three different um, armed forces during the war. And he, and he wrote many, many letters home, which give us a great snapshot of what's going on. And uh, your listeners may not know that Hall later became famous as a writer, and he wrote Mutiny on the Bounty. Uh, which, of course, I think everyone knows knows at least that. He wrote many other mm. novels, but that's what he's most famous for. This is this is a incredibly unfair question. I'm just going to give you a little bit of a advance warning and dispensation. I love unfair questions. <laughs> <laughs> so in in one minute or less, we've been we've been discussing kind of this movement in an, in a roundabout way. But and I meant to ask this earlier, so forgive me. Uh, progressivism was a significant political and social movement at this time. Uh, use all your PhD powers and, and, and define progressivism for us in this time period and, and what it meant to Roosevelt, Wilson and Adams. It, it's a good question, not an unfair question. And it's something that when I was writing the book, my editor had said, try to explain it because progressivism is is hard to explain to people i found it's hard to explain to students sometimes but i think i think the best way to understand it was it was just a reform movement that kind of swept the united states from about the 1890s up to maybe the early 20s if that and it was a movement that emerged in response to i think threats from above and perceived threats from above, meaning the super wealthy and the super giant corporations that are, are taking over, and threats, perceived threats from below. All these immigrants are coming over and we have to reform. So, so it's it's just this idea that society itself is 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 has a lot of issues that need to be addressed. And the reform movement, the reformers themselves that participate in this movement called their movement progressivism as an idea that it's progressive. So I think that's just the simplest way to see it. It's, it's, it's almost an umbrella movement encompassing all kinds of different reforms. It could be 
uh, ending child labor. It, it could be um, regulating uh, big business. It could be uh, cracking down on, on, on gambling. I mean, it, it's so many different kinds of reforms or even the initiative or the referendum. I mean, so it, 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 mm-hmm. it, it cut across a lot of different things. And you could be a progressive and support one reform and not another. So you didn't, it's very, very unlikely that you would in fact, as a progressive support all these different reforms. But as I said, it's one, it's an umbrella term. Um, Adams, I think was the, was the, the most progressive of the three in that she was on the forefront of um, just about every reform movement of the day. Um, Roosevelt got more and more progressive. I think he was a, you know, a, a Republican who, who was leaned left when he was in the White House. In his last years in office, he moved even farther to the left. And then when he was out of the White House, he went really whole hog into every progressive cause known to man. Same thing with Wilson. I think they saw the country was turning that direction, 1912, 1913. They all started to get behind it as almost this is a, a, a strong political force in this country. Um, and we've got to get behind it. So I think it was it was sweeping the country. What's unfortunate for, for people like Adams is that when the war comes, it does almost grind the movement to a halt to a certain degree. The momentum slows when, when the war comes sure. in. The Great War in general uh, seems to have been the result of an incredible happenstance in Sarajevo in June of 1914 when um, a man who decides not to throw a bomb just happens to be standing a few feet away from the person he was going to kill with the bomb as the archduke's driver can't figure out the car it's one of the most incredible things i've ever read in history is how gavrilo princep just happened to be there sulking and there's the car with the archduke franz ferdinand it's unbelievable how that happened. But besides this happenstance, it's also the war was a result of, of decades of planning by the great powers, all of them, Russia, Germany, Great Britain, France. Uh, was it realistic once the war started and then it just it metastasized and became this 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 unprecedented conflict? Uh, was it realistic to think the United States could stay out of it unharmed unharmed no stay out of it yes i think i think it was possible that wilson could have kept the country out of war um one thing i did talk about in the book even when when, when the vote for war when the, when, the, when the resolution goes to congress um in april 1917 the war resolution the vote was 373 to 50 but at the time Many said that if it had been a secret ballot, it would have been closer than that. Um, many, many Americans and many, many in Congress, again, we talked about this earlier, particularly in the Midwest and the South, uh, still didn't see the, the point of it, still felt we could avoid this. And I think, I think Wilson, had he said, we're still going to continue being neutral, we'll do armed neutrality, which was his suggestion before, you know, we'll arm, we'll arm our ships uh, we will not. We will not fully declare war. Um, I think there was a possible route to be taken there. In May 1915, the British liner Lusitania was sunk by a German U-boat. How did this affect American attitudes towards the war, President Wilson's, 
and describe for the Leaders and Legends audience what Teddy Roosevelt's reaction was. I think that was one occasion where if Wilson had said, I want to bring back Congress and vote on vote, vote on a war resolution, he might have been able to get it through because the country was 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 worked into a frenzy. Um, but for a very brief time, I, I don't think it lasted more than maybe a week or two. I think people calmed down. Um, I think the, the death toll was 118 or something like that, in the hundreds. It wasn't, it wasn't like a tremendous amount, but, it, but it's hard of, for us to understand. Americans, yeah, of Americans. Yes, Americans, yeah. yeah was, I think it was 1,100 all told, 1,200 all told, and 100, maybe 128 Americans. But the idea of, 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 a, of a passenger ship being sunk uh, was just so inconceivable at the time. You know, it just was like that was violating violating um, international law. I mean, it's inhuman. It's just not done. Uh, so, of course, by World War II, and even by the end of World War One, these type of things would not be shocking anymore, but it was shocking at the time. And so Americans were, were extremely, extremely upset about it. On the other hand, when Wilson, a couple of days out, the, the sinking was on a Friday, and Wilson, I think, on Monday went to speak in Philadelphia uh, for something he had been planned months earlier. And everyone's waiting to see what Wilson's going to say. Is he going to say, you know, we need to go fight, you know, America must be strong. But instead he says, um, there is such a thing as, as a man who is too proud to fight or such a thing as a country, which is too mm. proud to fight. So that was a signal that the country is not going to go to war. We're going to, we're going to maintain our cool and our, 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 our self-possession. It was a very Wilson word. It's belief that we should not, we can't, we can't be knocked off our, our, you know, our, our, our strong emotional um, moorings, so to speak. Um, and I think the country, as angry as they were, most people were happy about that. Now, was Roosevelt happy? No. Roosevelt, I don't know if Roosevelt was ready to go to war, because what, what, what could we have done at that point? We have no, we have no, no right. army to speak of. Um, but I think Roosevelt felt a more forceful reaction was necessary uh, perhaps severing of ties with Germany. Um, I mean, it's certainly different. Different things should have been done. Um, there's a quote that that Roosevelt even even made at the time, is that there are things that are worse than war. You know, America losing its 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 heart, losing its 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 pride. That's worse than war. And what's interesting about Roosevelt, he's in the middle of a libel case when this is all going on. He's being sued. He's he's his fate is his. Is, 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 is in the hands of a jury almost at this point. It's about to go to the jury. Um, and there was a concern because there were, I think it was one, it was one, maybe two German-Americans on the, on the jury who, who might have gone against him because he's making these comments. But Roosevelt, as I said, was not afraid to take the unpopular, unpopular uh, choice at the time. Um, Jane Adams at this time was, was in Europe. She was doing her jaunt to the various capitals um, and she felt that R Wilson was doing the right thing also, that taking the country into war or doing anything that might accelerate America's path to war was a big mistake. But that was probably the time during this period where Americans were most ready and revved up, even if it's a very short period. But I think they were there was he might have been able to pull the country into war had he had he been so inclined. We are fascinated in this country with our history when it comes to close presidential elections. Election of 1800, 1876, 1960, 68, 2000, list goes on. Uh, to me, the most, the most unexamined, and you do a terrific job of it in your book, uh, is the 1916 election. 
in which Woodrow Wilson wins re-election by 23 electoral votes. It basically comes down to California, and I think Wilson wins California by what, four or 5,000 votes? Yes, it's a, it's a ridiculously small, small number. Um, it, it, I agree with you in that I think it's a fascinating election, not because I spent how many years of my life researching this book, but I, 1916 is an election we don't hear that much about, um, but it was so close and the stakes were so high. I mean, you have Wilson running for re-election, of course, and, and, and the Wilson campaign is going to trumpet, he kept us out of war, which Wilson's not that comfortable with because he knows that can change at any one moment. <laughs> uh, the Republicans, Roosevelt wanted the nomination, doesn't get it, and it goes to the Supreme Court Justice Charles Hughes. Um, and Roosevelt's on the stump for him and is out there trying to drum up votes for, for Hughes. But Everyone knew it was going to be close. And Roosevelt himself said before the election, before the couple of days before the election, said this, it's probably not going to be known for a few days. And he was right. Uh, but on election night, it looked like Hughes was going to win. He was leading throughout the country. He won New York. Newspapers are coming out. You know, the evening newspapers on, on election night are saying Hughes is the winner. They even go to Roosevelt's house, gives a statement saying, I'm, I'm so glad our this national embarrassment is over. Hughes is president. <laughs> Yay. But then by the next morning, as votes from the West start coming, everything starts shifting. And then there's a fairly long count. I mean, I think it's not until Friday of that week. So the election's on Tuesday. I think Friday night, as I recall is when they finally can can conclusively determine that Wilson has won. Um, it's interesting, the elections at that time, which I don't think I fully realized when I was doing the research, that the South was just basically, it was a given. I, I, all the votes were going go to go to Wilson. Uh, the Republican candidates got negligible support uh, in the South. So, so every Democratic nominee in those days started out with getting all the former Confederate states they start with a hundred something electoral votes. So that, that was a fairly big advantage. And of course, because, because African-Americans could not vote in the South they were kept from voting. So the South was a solid South for the democratic party. So it's almost, the election was almost more close than the, the, the actual raw votes uh, attest to. So you, cause you can't really compare the votes in the South because Republicans were, were, were negligible. Um, and as you mentioned, California was, was the one that turned uh, if if Hughes wins California, he wins the election, and it was four or five thousand votes. And some it was again some progressive issues that Hughes was was I think a progressive, not not a hardcore one. But when he had been governor of New York, he had been a progressive. But when he ran this campaign, sort of in a way of like, I'm not going to offend anyone. I'm not going to come out too strong for progressivism. I'll I'll try to sort of cling to the center of the of the Republican Party. He went out to California and didn't do enough to really curry favor with the, with the progressives in California, particularly uh, Hiram Johnson, uh, who was who had been governor, later became senator, um, and that may have cost him the election. You know, because he, he if he had done more in California and had seen the right people and had curried more favor with the progressives in California, he wins California, he wins the election, and everything changes. And that that was again a history making election, which people probably don't give credit to. Because if Hughes is president, again, things might have changed than the, the Wilson presidency. We have a few more minutes with Dr. Neil Langto, author of The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and Their Clash Over America's Future. The United States did not enter the war until April 17, but throughout the war, Imperial Germany claimed that during the course of the conflict, America had hardly actually been neutral. Is this a fair and accurate 
accusation? It probably is. Um, the Wilson administration early on decided we're not going to lean too hard on the allies as far as some of the international violation of international law that the allies were doing. M- much of it involved uh, interference with American trade, uh, which is a very, you know, it annoys people in the United States a great deal. I mean, that American ships are being stopped and, they, and they're not allowed to trade with neutral countries without the British, you know, stopping them and things like that. So it, it annoys Americans a great deal, it annoys Wilson a great deal. And the Wilson administration sends out a lot of protests, a lot of notes, but they never say, if you keep doing this, we're going to cut off trade with you. They never lean terribly hard on the allies. Part of the reason, I think, was, of course, the economic windfall we were getting from trade with the allies. Uh, the United States, on the other hand, is much tougher on Germany, uh, much more willing to uh, make ominous threats as far as German behavior is concerned. Um, now, of course, what Roosevelt said at the time was, yes, the Allies are doing things that are, 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 are not really kosher either. Uh, but the issue is one, one violation involves property, which is the Allies interfering with trade. The other side involves human lives with the Germans uh, submarines attacking ships with the loss of American lives. So that's that's the difference. And that's why sure. we have to be tougher on the other side. So the Germans were very resentful of the United States. And that's one of the reasons why they never could accept. Wilson always had this idea he was somehow going to be able to help bring peace and somehow facilitate peace. But the Germans were only willing to have Wilson bring the, bring the combatants, the contestants to the peace table. But they did not want Wilson in there as some kind of um, arbitrator. Uh, they felt he was too sympathetic to the allies. And one thing that I mentioned or should have mentioned a few minutes ago when we were talking about geography was the the great concentration of of German immigrants in the Midwest, in cities like Milwaukee, St. Louis, and that there was a different attitude, not only uh, geographical, but also in terms of, of national origin. Uh, how did that make a difference in American policy where you had sort of the uh, East Coast with a different ethnic makeup, although you did have a hell of a lot of Irish who hated the British and didn't mind seeing their um, ears get boxed. But just in terms of of the immigration boom, the post-Civil War, and how that affected not only the politics, but but some of the attitudes of the people involved. Well, one thing I didn't realize before I read this book was just how significant the German, German-American uh, population was in the United States. It was it was very very large, very 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 sizable, and they were sort of looked on before the war as the ideal immigrant group. That the, these these people had come over here and they had immediately uh, worked hard and they had been farmers at first and then they had become parts of the community and they were just uh, they were just the ideal group. Um, and as you mentioned, in the Midwest, you have these really large German populations. I have this this, this little little passage in the book about Milwaukee, as you just mentioned. Milwaukee was a giant German population, and how some of the department stores expected the the the, the help to be fluent in German. I mean, that's that's how, how 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 significant the presence was. And there was also this this issue of the German American vote politically was thought to be sort of a vote. Uh, and, and, and there was always this thing that uh, don't alienate the German-American vote. It could cost you the election. On the other hand, as you mentioned, you know, you have different immigrant groups who feel who have, have different different attitudes towards the war. 
Um, you, you have large Jewish population on, on, on the East Coast um, who, who have different attitudes about who, which sides they're going to take. You mentioned the Irish and their views towards the war. There's always this sense that Wilson is trying to tamp down any kind of possible flare-up among the immigrant groups as far as the war is concerned, that, that we don't want anyone getting too excited. And of course, once the war begins, America gets involved, there's going to be a lot of uh, anti-German uh, activity in this country and a lot of, a lot of hostility towards Germans. Um, in the buildup towards the war in 1950, 1960, and 17, there is always suspicion among some people about the Germans in this country. Just how loyal are they? Are they involved in espionage? Something I talk about in the book that the Germans had all kinds of, of spies going on in this country during the, in, in the buildup of the war. They were constantly trying to interfere with munitions sent to, uh, to the Allies. Uh, and there were some German Americans who participated in those efforts mm-hmm. to disrupt uh, shipments being sent to the Allies. And the Kaiser, I read a book a couple of years ago about the relationship between Germany and the United States and, and the Kaiser and the German government kind of expected that. Like, you know, I know you live in the United States, but you're German. You're on our side now. And that didn't really happen to the degree that the imperial German uh, government thought it would. Yes, that was that was a complete fantasy. Um, and another one of the secondary characters in the book is is, is Johann von Bernstorff, who was the German ambassador in Washington. And he understood the American situation better than everyone else. He was somebody who had right. an American wife. He, he knew exactly what was going on. He tried to tell them what was going on. But the, back in Berlin, they had this sense that, of course, the German Americans, they will they will all uh, rise up as one once once if America goes to war with Germany and they will immediately, you know, uh, you know, do what they can for the fatherland. And that was that was very naive. And I think uh, after the war, Bernstorff has a quote where he said something like the, the, the great mistake was that we expected much more than we, we ever got from German Americans. Yes, there were some hardcore German Americans who were ready to go fight for the Kaiser. Uh, but many of them, as much as they might be might be like hoping that the Germans won because that's where their family was from, when push came to shove, they were going to support the United States. That was their new home, and they, they believed in America. We should note uh, that uh, this podcast is originates out of Indianapolis, and we have our own sizable German population, have one of the most beautiful buildings in the Midwest called the Athenaeum that was uh, built as part of that that culture. And and I guess Germans must have been, German immigrants must have been really popular because North Dakota named its capital after the Iron Chancellor mm-hmm. in the hopes of attracting German workers to come out to the frontier. A couple more questions before we get to the final five questions of the Leaders and Legends podcast. We're talking to Dr. Neil Langto. Uh, the Zimmer, Zimmerman note or Zimmerman telegram seems to be, if I can remember my college and high school history courses it seems like it gets a strong note a notice in in history as being this dispositive event but one of the things that comes through in your book was germany's declaration of unrestricted submarine warfare in 1917 the second time they had done it in the war that that declaration was just too much for the united states to absorb I think that was the end, and I think the Germans knew it was the end. I mean, in early 1917, the German, you know, the, the military and the and the navy basically 
had this sense that, well, we've waited long enough for someone to, to get to have peace brokered. It's not going to happen. Uh, so we, we have to do everything we can to end the war because we can't we can't win a long war. So what are we going to do? We have to throw everything we can and try to end the war this year. How do we do that? We unleash the submarines. We unleash the submarines. We starve England and England. It will sue for peace by the end of the year. That was the theory. That was that was that was the very mm-hmm. optimistic view of of the people in the military and the navy. Um, there are a few sane people in in the government who thought this is not going to happen. It's unrealistic, but but no one no one really stood in the way of it. I think no one else had. They had no other idea what to do at this point. They knew it was going to bring the United States, but the thought was again that okay. They'll declare war on us, but it'll take them a year to put an army in the field against us, and the war will be over by then. So they thought they had all the bases covered, um, but they were as greatly mistaken as it turned out. As far as the Zimmerman, the Zimmerman, no, it's, I think it's been over overstated its importance. I think it was important, but it was such a crazy idea that kind of germinated from one one particular individual in the in the uh, uh, in Germany. Um, the idea was more about let's see if we can put a lure out to Mexico, get the Mexicans to tie up Americans on the border so they can't, so Americans won't be able to send troops over to Europe as soon. And maybe if we get the Mexicans interested, they can possibly bring the Japanese somehow into, into this fight on our side. That's what the, the Zerman note was all about. It was totally ridiculous to think that, oh, the Mexicans are going to invade the United States and have a chance to win back uh, Arizona and Texas and all of this. Everyone knew it was it was it was it was a crazy idea, and even people people in Germany knew it was. And the German leadership later on, um, it's even thought that Zimmerman barely looked at it. But what happened with the note? The note was sent and it was intercepted by the British. Uh, the British sat on it for a while, and then they eventually turned it over to the United States, and then it was leaked. Uh, the Wilson administration leaked it to the newspapers. And again, it got people very, very upset. The Germans are, are fomenting war on, on our border. They're trying to take away our territory, but that was never going to happen. Mexico was was basically a, a mess in many ways and was a very unstable country. They certainly not be able to mount a serious war against the United States and take away territory from us. But it seemed to show how Germany would stoop to, there was no limit to what they would stoop to at this point. So it did get the country very worked up. Did it stampede us into war? I would say no. You know, it's interesting. You you tend to think that a lot of these wars, when you read about them, that the in, the outcome is is preordained, right? Like, oh, of course, this is how it's going to end. But any reading of World War One leaves you somewhat astounded at the strength of Imperial Germany that they held off Great Britain and France and Russia. They had one of their allies in the uh, triple alliance flip on them meaning italy their other ally austria hungary was basically a sieve it did tie up they did tie up some russian troops but more often than not the germans had to come to their rescue this is an immensely powerful state country in the world but yet their war strategy really kind of centered on three rolls of the dice the schlieffen plan and 1914 unrestricted submarine warfare in 1917 and then operation michael their all-out offensive in the west in 1918 uh, ludendorff their their famous strategist 
looked at the Kaiser one time and said, we cannot fight the whole world, but yet they did. Do you think the United States was the reason that Imperial Germany lost that war? I mean, it may be perhaps simplistic to say that, but I, I, I do think it, they had a huge, huge impact uh, on it. I think it, I think it broke down the, I, th- I think it, it broke down the re- resistance, not the word I want to use here, but um, I think it broke down the, the morale of, of, of the Germans of saying the Americans are just pouring into the country. I mean, there, there's, there's so many of them. It's like, like we've been, we've been, we've been in this death struggle with the French and the, and the, and the English uh, since 1914. And we're both very wary. And all of a sudden, all these, these fresh troops are coming over. How can we possibly deal with them on top of who we've been dealing with for four years? So I, I do think that was um probably very disheartening. And there's a quote I have in the book where, where I, I don't remember which German military official states this in 1918, saying the Americans are multiplying in ways we never thought was possible. I, I think the Germans also did not think it was conceivable how a million, a million American troops would get across the ocean and be, be deployed in this way. So I, I do believe that the outcome of World War I was very much determined by American involvement. Um, Bernstorff, who I mentioned earlier, stated this later on. He said, if America stays out, there's a good chance that there is no winner in this war. And maybe that would have been a better thing because maybe uh, democracy would have come to Europe uh, instead of what happened in the 1920s. Um, I'm not sure that maybe that's a very rosy view of what might have happened. But again, I mentioned this earlier in the interview. I think we can all see almost a totally alternate scenario if the United States does not get involved in this war. And it's not only the numbers. If you read some of the letters from the German officers, who these letters have been included in other histories of World War One, it wasn't the sheer numbers of the Americans that impressed them, even though it did. Another thing that impressed them was the condition of the Americans. They were bigger. They were stronger. They were healthier. They were more vibrant because they hadn't been grinded down for years in these trench warfare battles. Yes, that, that, is, that is a very interesting uh, part of the picture when these Americans come over and they all just, yeah, they're, they look totally different uh, from, 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 the, from the soldiers who had been involved in this, in this terrible struggle for four years. Um, and the American soldiers who go over, of course, you know, they learn how to fight relatively quickly. I mean, they, they, they acquit themselves rather well and prove that they're, you know, they're not just going to be a pushover. I think the Germans, I think, originally thought, oh, well, they're not trained. They're not, you know, what are they? But they ended up showing that they were, could more than hold their own. The last question before we get to the five questions. Is it fair to say that of the three people who are featured in your book, Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and Jane Adams, that Jane Adams had the happiest ending? I think I would agree with you. I would agree with you. Um, Roosevelt spends World War One very embittered. Uh, when the war ends, he go, he actually goes to the hospital. I think on the day on, on Armistice Day, stays spends about a month in the hospital, gets out of the hospital, comes home, and then dies of uh, I think it was a cerebral hemorrhage. Uh, so he has a very unhappy end of his life. Uh, Wilson, of course, successfully uh, runs the war. Uh, has issues 
at Versailles, which I won't even get into here. Uh, then, of course, when he tries to get the League of Nations through, get the United States to ratify the League of Nations, get Congress to ratify it, he suffers a massive stroke in 1919, and he is never the same mentally or physically, and then dies in 1924. So certainly the end of his life is quite unhappy and certainly a great decline. Adams, uh, during the war, is kind of vilified as being still part of the pacifist group. Um, and even into the 1920s, she's seen as a dangerous radical to the point where the FBI is watching her and spying on her. But by the late 20s, early 30s, there's sort of been a turnaround. I think as we've gotten, as we get farther out from the war, people start seeing World War I as a mistake. Adam's reputation starts to improve. In the last three or four years of her life, she is again honored and, and, and venerated and praised and really, really takes her place in the sun once again to the point uh, where I think she's, she's, she's honored as, as well. She gets the Nobel, Nobel Prize, Nobel Peace Prize late in life at that time as well. So she does, I think, end with, I think, her career on the upswing and her place in American history on the upswing. Now, unfortunately, I think her reputation has sort of suffered in the last eight, not reputation, I think her prestige as far as, as an individual, as far as an important figure in American history has suffered, which hopefully this book will, will correct. I think she certainly deserves uh, a lot more ink than she has received up to date. We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Uh, Neil, are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Number one, what was your first job? Uh, my first job was washing dishes. What was your first concert? First concert. We're about the same age, so don't embarrass me. I think it was Elton John. <laughs> I think it was Elton John in the 80s, sometime <laughs> in the 80s. That's a damn good one. Uh, number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Uh, I think fiction, one of my favorite books of fiction is, is A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole, uh, which some of you may know of. This is a guy who wrote basically one book. He couldn't really sell it. He ended up committing suicide. And the book was later published years later. It's one of the great comic novels um, written. Um, that would be my favorite. I think probably my book I recommend for fiction. For nonfiction, I really like the book Middletown, which is a great study of the 1920s written in the 1920s by a husband and wife team, Helen and Robert Lind. They went into Muncie, Indiana. This is appropriate for you. Have you ever yeah. heard of Middletown? No, sir. So Middletown is this, this seminal work on the 1920s, and, and the Lynns went to what they considered the average American town and studied it for two years like anthropologists, and they went to Muncie. And then they wrote up a this massive book uh, explaining what's going on in this community and, and, and how American life was changing in the 1920s. It's, it's an absolutely fascinating book. Uh, so I, I like Middletown as my nonfiction recommendation. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? I'm going to go with a sports one. I have written about baseball, so I'm going to take a sports one. And this is, this is, this is the one I would like to have witnessed would be Babe Ruth's called shot. There's great controversy whether Babe Ruth actually called his shot. This is in the 1932 World Series. It's this great moment when Babe supposedly pointed his pointed his bat to the stands and hit a home run. And then there's great debate whether did he really do it or not. So I'd like to have been there to see if he did it. I should say that uh, 
I interviewed a columnist, George Will, not that long ago. And, oh, his, wow. answer, and his answer was, I asked him if he could witness any uh, event. And he said, Bill Mazarowski, game seven, World Series. He said, that's, not, that's he, goes, he says, nothing's even close, which I thought was funny. Number five, last question. If you, if you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? Living today? Yes, sir. Uh, I think Paul McCartney. Terrific, terrific choice. And no one had really chosen him, but you're the second person in the last three podcasts to mention him. He would probably because he's out there so much now, but he probably, he has so many stories to tell and he lived through so much. That's what made me think of him. He has some great interviews with Howard Stern on YouTube. If you ever want to look them up. Yes, I've seen some of them. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn. Happy birthday, Chuck McGinley, November 22nd. And McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Neil Lankto, professor and author of The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and their class over America's future. Thank you so much for your time today. Your book is absolutely amazing, and we really appreciate you discussing it with us. Thank you so, thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.